Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. Joining me this week for an up-to-date episode is Adam Bristol. Hey, Andre. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well, thanks. So what caught your eye in the news this week? Well, I've been following the fascinating story of this interstellar object now known as Oumuamua. Uh-huh. Have, you, have you followed Oumuamua? <laughs> I remember we talked about this on a previous up-to-date. And I mean, not literally following it across the sky. I mean, like figuratively, the story of Oumuamua. I, I must admit, I'm behind on my Oumuamua. Okay. Well, that is Hawaiian for scout or messenger. And this is an object which I believe was first identified in the cosmos in 2017. It had some very unusual properties, and it was thought to be potentially alien technology from another solar system. Right. And I say that not in jest because actually a Harvard astronomer, someone with quite a bit of credibility, espoused a theory that was, I think, not crazy, but actually was somewhat compelling to try to put together the evidence to show that this could conceivably be something like a solar sail or something that at least have, has its origins in a civilization in another solar system. Oh, please tell me he was right. No, he was. He, see, he appears to be wrong. <laughs> okay, bummer. Because this week in the Journal of Geophysical Research, colon, planets, okay. two Arizona State uh, University researchers put together a model of Oumuamua's behavior and were able to explain all the known data by positing that is, in fact, a chunk of a Pluto-like planet. It's a, basically a chunk of solid nitrogen gas, like a solid nitrogen ice. Well, that makes it kind of a UFO. Yeah, no, for sure. No, I think that while it does, <laughs> unfortunately, it doesn't really... Um, now, now the kind of alien technology theory certainly is much more outlandish, you know, in terms of an Occam's razor. Like this is more easily explained as it's a physical, um, you know, kind of chunk that's been broken off something, a Pluto-like planet. 
Mm-hmm. But um, it does definitely still, it's of, of interstellar origin. We've learned a lot from these kind of interloping um, um, objects as they come through our solar system. And it's actually a pretty fascinating paper. Most of it was over my head, for sure. But I understand the gist of them trying to account for the speed of the object, the size and shape of the object, as well as, of course, the fact that it never had a comet's tail. A okay. comet's tail that we would often huh. say is kind of the detectable escaping gas off the back end. And so And was that was that the feature that the hardware astronomer was using to say that maybe this is uh something that was built specifically rather than occurring naturally? Yeah, that was one piece of it as well as what's a mo- what appears to be a pancake like shape. Mm-hmm. The thought that it could be something like a solar sail or something. Cuz it's generally I think Again, this is a little bit I'm up, up over my skis here, but generally things that are kind of flying around, certainly for billions of years in the solar system, don't maintain a flat pancake-like shake. They tend to sort of become more spheroid, Got as it. I understand Got it. it. Okay. So, so that's that's this sort of. It seems to me I'll be curious to see if this continues on this debate around more features of an Oumuamua analysis, but this seems to me like it's a bit of the final word on really what was that fascinating object that captured astronomers worldwide, captured their attention. Okay, cool. Well, I wanted to talk about something also that flies. Um, and that was, uh, or the story, I should say, was brought to my attention by a mutual friend of ours, Deepa. Okay, great. So she sent me this link to a video that uh, came out of Stanford University where a number of researchers used 12 high-speed cameras and a bunch of uh, pressure plates and over 2,000 microphones to essentially localize the sound coming from a hummingbird. Okay. Was that, was that, uh, was that not known? Apparently not. I mean, this is something that you would think we would already know because hummingbirds have been around. That seems like, you know, they're interesting birds. You'd think that people who study bird sounds would have already figured this out. But it turns out that it's actually really difficult to precisely localize what part of the bird is making the sound. Hmm. I actually didn't know that. And it turns out that they discovered that, in fact, it's the complexity and the texture of their wings. And what they are, you know, there's this like, there's notion that they're more like insects in terms of how they're using their wings to make sound than they are like birds who are using more of a vocal apparatus. I see. So this is this is the sound they make as they're flying. It's not a vocalization they're well, making. Well, but no, it seems like this is, I mean, this is the sound that they seem to also use, you know, I, I guess why why do hummingbirds hum, right? This is the sound that we associate with hummingbirds that they make. And I don't know necessarily if we know much about whether the birds use this sound, like as a communication tool. I don't know. I guess I'd have to look that up. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it's it, certainly characteristic yeah. of, of what we think of as, as the sound. Yeah, there's no doubt if you're, if you're lucky enough to be around, you see a flower, then all of a sudden there's a hummingbird there. They seem to kind of hover fairly silently. But then as they change position, start to fl- flit away, there does seem this kind of like a, you know, they kind mm-hmm. of, and I thought that that was what you're saying because they do make a, a vocalization. It's almost like a short little chirp, right? But, but 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 you're but they're trying to basically measure the sound complexity of the beating wings. Yes. Did you read Hold the paper? On. I did. <laughs> no, 
did. Did you read the press release? I did that read co- the paper <laughs> and the press release, no, and I watched is, the video. I mean, so okay, so the research appears um, in yes, a journal called eLife, yeah. call, and the paper is called "How Oscillating Aerodynamic Forces Explain the Timbre of the Hummingbird's Hum um, and Other Animals in Flapping Flight." But but the the punchline, the kind of applicability of this research is what I get, gets me really excited. And I think something that you will totally buy into just like I will. Okay. So what is a sound that um, has, you know, brought a lot of fear to our, when he was three or four years old? Um, or remember, you know, ruined a wedding? Uh, mm. Does that make any, what, what sound do we like not like when you're you oh, trying to enjoy the park and suddenly yes. there is a sound of a... A drone. A drone. And yeah. it's really annoying. So apparently, this research is supposed to help people design quieter drones and mm. quieter vacuum cleaners and yeah. other appliances, which I Got think it. is well worth the funding because it is really annoying yeah. um, when yeah. your contemplative, beautiful picnic in the park is ruined by the sound of a drone. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, that was that was one thing that I thought was really cool about the okay, cool. this research. Well, I have another one for you. All right. This is in a paper, I think it was maybe two weeks ago, in the Journal of Quantitative Criminology. Not one that I regularly read, but the uh, synopsis of this paper uh, crossed my desk because I'm an avid baseball fan. And when you read regularly places like Baseball Perspective and Baseball Prospectus and Fan Graphs, these types of papers really show up. And here was a paper that used a very clever strategy to get at this question of, well, of course, drunk people committing more crimes, but sure. putting a quantitative um, assessment on the impact of the alcohol consumption policies at Major League Baseball stadiums. Oh, wait, wait, wait. But, okay, so do we know that people who are drunk are more likely to commit crimes? Or do we just know that when there is alcohol involved, there tends to be a higher rate of criminal activity? I think it's probably the latter, but I don't see why the former isn't uh-huh. true. Right, Because okay. people with impaired judgments are probably more likely to do bad things. Right. Oh, I was just thinking, like, if people are stumbling around doing stupid things that might anger other people. And but, but yeah, okay. It could be that. But either way, you know, th- th- there's an interesting natural experiment that these two economists criminologists were able to use, which is in most baseball stadiums, they stop selling alcoholic beverages after the seventh inning. Mm. And for our listeners who are outside the United States, a typical baseball game lasts nine innings so that they're trying to stop the sale of alcohol two innings before the end of the game. But baseball games don't have a time limit. And so the duration that of the game after that seventh inning could be two innings, or it could be, you know, anything, really. I mean, the longest Major League Baseball game, I think, was 25 innings. But the point of the story is, is every year there are games that go into, quote, unquote, extra innings, where they go beyond nine innings. And so now you're getting a data set of alcohol sales that are either, you know, up till seven innings, with only two innings of time to sober up, Mm -hmm. or you have cases where there are much more time where there's gameplay, but no alcohol sales, and so presumably more time to sober up. Yeah, so I mean, they don't know they're going to go to 25 innings, so they stop it at the 7th. They stop it at the 7th, but what they're saying is there's a natural variation now in the data set based on just how long fans have where they can't can't buy and and, and consume alcohol at the stadium. And they 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 wanted to then correlate... 
the crime in the in the areas around the major league stadium. Right. Okay. And so they did this in Philadelphia around the the, the Phillies baseball stadium for the years 20, 2006 to twenty fifteen. Oh, okay. And not surprisingly, they found that for those nights where the games went long, and there was more time without any alcohol sales, it was correlated with lower rates of crime in the huh. surrounding area. But here's the interesting thing. In 2012, they opened up a sports bar in the parking lot of the baseball stadium. <laughs> Uh-oh. And that basically <laughs> mitigated the effect of the alcohol, like, you know, in the impact of the alcohol sale policy. <laughs> so after 2012, even if you had a longer game, people just would go to the bars and they would get their alcohol there. I see. So on the one hand, this is a nice demonstration of, I think, what we probably already know, that if you have areas with lots of people and, you know, and alcohol, that there's a likelihood of higher crime. But um, I think it also shows, too, that these that these major sports franchises do have some levers they can pull in terms of alcohol sales to try to prevent some of the more, you know, egregious crime rates in areas around them. But of course, they can also backfire on them when they try to really chase the almighty dollar and put sports bars basically in quick and easy, you know, in easy reach. And and that, you know, extra bar also, you know, potentially addresses an alternative explanation, which is that when the game goes long, people are just numbed into boredom. Hmm, I don't think so. <laughs> because no, no. The paper actually discusses the um alcohol. That they they don't have the ability to look at rain delays. Rain delays oh, could be an interesting. That would be an interesting. Where for control. our non like if for people who don't follow baseball closely, there are times when it rains, and if it's not if it's an outdoor stadium, that play has to pause for a bit. Does alcohol pause? You know, I don't think so. Yeah, probably. Yeah, just keep I don't think it, it does. Right? I think they probably look at that as like huh. captive audience, you know, yep. for sales. Um, interesting to see if there's yeah if there's actually more more, more violence after a rain delay. Because now yeah. you have within those same seven innings yeah. a longer period of time in which there was alcohol sales. But this notion of just you know building up the retail and 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 food and bars and stuff in right on the same property of the stadiums that seems to me like a, a not even I can't even call it a trend. It's just almost a given now because certainly down in San Francisco where the Giants play, there's a number of bars and restaurants yeah. within a one one block walk. Well, of it's the, easy uh, money. Yeah, for sure. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. 
Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, so I have one more for you, and it's one of my favorite kinds of studies because it introduces me to, or introduces us, I guess, to an entirely, previously for me, unknown kind of neurological difference or brain difference. So apparently there are some people who have aphantasia. Can you guess what that might be? Mm, the inability to like create fantasies, like to almost conceive of or imagine alternative exactly realities. Exactly right. Exactly right. So wow. they, they okay. yeah, very good. So they are essentially people who are unable to do mental imagery. Wow. So when they huh. remember things or, you know, they're trying to plan for future events, they don't have an image to go with that that information. So they mm. remember things not with kind of pictures in their mind, but rather with just like facts or, you know, I, I don't know how it works, hmm. but, you know, hmm. just remembering details that don't have an image associated with them. Um, so that was, that was, I thought that was really interesting that there was some, and I can imagine that some people have, I, I imagine this is a, a gradient, right? So there, for some people, you know, their memories can be very vivid vi from a mental imagery perspective. And for others, you know, they're a little bit less vivid, you know, maybe they remember, you know, a certain thing here and there, but they don't kind of bring up the, the full detail. And I certainly know that among the music students that I've worked with at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, there was a large variation in terms of how well they were able to image music or, or use mental imagery as a tool in their practice. So, you know, we know that when we do something in our minds, if, if we if we do it as, you know, as as vividly and with as much detail as as almost as possible, then we see you know, the same networks of the brain that are activated. And in fact, we can see a lot of performance enhancement. In fact, this is a tool that a lot of um, sports coaches use to help their players play better. If you can just imagine what you're going to do, you, it actually does have an influence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I've heard of that. So in the journal, The Proceedings of the Royal Society B, Biological Sciences, um, Marcus Wicken, Rebecca Keogh, and Joel Pearson published a paper asking people who have aphantasia so they they it's by self report but they have a you know they now have a an index uh, a survey that they can use to sort of decide whether people are you know meet meet the diagnostic criteria for for this thing they had them look at both actual fear inducing images so you know a picture of a spider or you know a gun or something like that and they measured their physiological responses. So, okay. you know, how sweaty their palms are, for example. Um, skin conductance levels, they're called. And they found that they had normal or average skin conductance responses when they were looking at pictures of things that most of us would find fearful, which is important because we want to make sure that they have the same baseline physiology, that mm -hmm, they're not, like, mm -hmm. emotionally blunted in some mm -hmm, way. Mm -hmm. But when they were then asked to read or imagine frightening stories, like ghost stories, their skin conductance levels did not change. They did not have an emotional reaction uh, to these kinds of, you know, stories that require them to generate those images in their own minds compared to a control group. And seeing the control group did have the... They did the, have. The, they the, did okay. show that just like... Huh. Just like we would assume when they're imagining something frightening, uh, they show the same or a similar physiological response to when they're actually viewing something frightening. Okay. And, and you can so imagine that. And I think people probably vary in this a lot. Like, you know, we talk about like 
you and I have a really hard time watching scary movies because I think we do afterwards relive those images in our minds a lot. I certainly do. There are certainly oh, yeah. images of movies that I cannot get out of my head. And so it's not fun for me <laughs> to go through experience no. of watching a movie, no. um, uh, you know, because then I just can't get rid of it. Whereas I think that's for for other people, maybe that's not such a big deal that, that they don't have, you know, maybe, maybe their mental imagery is not you know, not as vivid or just doesn't generate as much of an emotional reaction as it would for you and I. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, I thought this Did was a really Did they put them in a scanner? Because, of course, there's some natural experiments you could imagine in terms of, like, if, what does the amygdala do, fear, fear, fear processing system do in these patients? Or these, right. Sorry, they're not patients. They're individuals because there's nothing clinically wrong with them. Yes, exactly. So in this case, they did not include neuroimaging data, but I wonder if this was actually... It seems like a natural next a, step. Correct. Yeah, that, that this might actually be a kind of preliminary, let's show that the behavior is, mm -hmm. you know, is mm -hmm. there, and then we can put the person mm -hmm. in the scanner and see what parts of the brain are, mm -hmm. are modulating this response. You wonder, so do you think that they would be deficient in even more mundane tasks like a mental rotation task? They well, they gonna... definitely are. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, that seems to be, uh, in, in, in fact, I think that's one of the ways in which they um, meet the criteria um, is that is that they don't do well on the kinds of sort of spatial rotation or mental imagery tasks that person that doesn't have this this condition would be fine. Right. In. A neurotypical. Yeah. And, you know, interestingly, this suggests that there is also the, one of the clinical implications that they talk about in their study is that for a lot of people who have anxiety disorders of, of any kind, talk therapy often uses mental imagery as a tool to sort of work therapeutically to get people to, you know, for example, if you're really afraid of, of spiders, then maybe one technique would be to start thinking about a spider and not have an adverse reaction. And eventually you kind of teach your brain that spiders, you know, aren't something that need that warrant that kind of a, a fear response. Um, but of course, for people for whom visual imagery is not as strong, this is not going to be as effective. So, if, and, and, I, and I don't know that people really necessarily know <laughs> that they have amphetasia. I mean, I'm sure there's there are a lot of people out there who, you know, probably would score, you know, high on the aphantasia scale, but don't know it. Um, yeah. It doesn't even have to be that severe. I mean, if you just go, any typical mindfulness practice involves mm -hmm. some form of mental imagery, you know, you were sitting on a beach, you know, like that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, it could have implications in, in a lot of ways, but then maybe not. You know, we all live so much of our lives just here in the present you know, reacting to and, and aware of whatever stimulus are here impinging on our senses in the moment. So mm -hmm. perhaps they can live a completely full and normal life and they don't really feel impacted by it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure they can, but I also think it's interesting to know this um, and to imagine what the consequences might be for me. One thing I find really interesting is how, you know, vivid remembering of the past is a way that we can plan for the future. So it would be interesting to see whether these individuals kind of make decisions that are much more present oriented rather than mm. future oriented. Right, right, right. So anyway, yeah. whole new field of, yeah. of research that I didn't know existed. Yeah, stock traders are a fantas, uh, <laughs> a fantasias, a fantasias. Maybe. 
So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rahala, Michael Galgul, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, Charles Blyle, and Dale Lemaster. Thank you so much for your support. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm one of your hosts. I'm Andrea Viscontis. And I'm Adam Bristol. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.